This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. But we got to optimize around the real value add and eliminate some of these bottlenecks. Just make things easier. Make it a creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. And the thread I see is... Welcome to Game Dev Advice the Game Developers Podcast, your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. So let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Hi, and two shout-outs as we get started. Emmer Nee Chobahan for being a fan of the show and sharing it on Twitter. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Plus everyone that's going to GDC 2022, I'll be there next year. This episode is with John Radoff, CEO of Beamable, a live services platform for game developers. He's also the author of Building the Meta Universe blog, where he open sources his thinking about the future of the internet. John's a lifelong entrepreneur who started making online games as a teenager before going on to build one of the first multiplayer commercial games on the internet, Legends of Future Pass. Since then, he's built businesses in web publishing, ad networking, and mobile games, reaching tens of millions of consumers. Enjoy. Hey, John, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Thank you, John. Cool. Uh, so where are you calling in from tonight? Uh, I'm in the East Coast around Boston. Beautiful area. Big Celtic fan um, back in the day. All right, let's get into it. Uh, what's your current role? Uh, well, I am CEO of a company called Beamable, and we make a live services platform for game developers. Very cool. You tell uh, a little bit of how that works, or yeah, sure. Um, you know, these days, basically every game is now a live game. Even single player games are live games. They have some kind of social component or some kind of economic component, or mm-hmm. they get content refreshes and things like that. And we really just noticed this problem in game development, which is You've got all these issues up and down the stack. Everything is so fragmented. Nothing's really integrated together. You've got different languages, all this stuff. So we really wanted to attack that problem. So when we looked at it, it was really 
sort of a fundamental architecture issue. People were building and like Unity or Unreal on the front end, and then they were mm-hmm. building off of something completely different on the back end. So we've created a system that brings it all together and makes it really super easy for game developers to get up and running. And mm-hmm. we've recently launched some games that are getting millions of people playing them. So we know it scales, works well. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're out there to do is just help people build their game faster, bring in the live services components your players are going to want. Mm-hmm. and not have to worry about whether the thing will keep running. That's great. That uh, I've seen some of the, your LinkedIn posts and some of the games and, the, like you said, the millions uh, concurrent players and stuff. So that's fantastic. So how did you get started in the industry? Uh, great question. And <laughs> if I'm going to go all the way back, I would say I guess I got started when I was nine years old and my mother bought me Dungeons and Dragons for a Christmas present. And and that was kind of it. Like that plus computer programming. Those were the two things I really loved as a kid. Uh And the journey from there took me through writing a couple of shareware games for online bulletin board systems. When I was a Mm. teenager, had a game called Space Empire, but then was playing an online game when I met my future wife in that online game and decided to drop out of college at 19 and start a game company with her. So she flew across the country. We started one of the first online games, uh, one of the first online commercial games on the internet. It was basically a commercial mud is how you describe it today, multi-user dungeon. Yeah. I did other stuff outside of the games industry as well. So I did that. I started a creator platform for websites mm-hmm. and I kind of came back to games again with a ad network that I started called Gamer DNA that I did with my current uh, COO, Trapper Markels. We worked on that company together then and this now. Okay. And then in between that, I went back to making games again. So built games based on Star Trek, Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Archer, so, you know, hands-on making games once again. And, and it was really through that that I noticed all these issues with building games and the repeatability of it and mm-hmm. the basic technology problems that I really felt, given some of the things that I had done, like building enterprise technology in addition to games that I'd be really well suited to. So right. that's what I've been doing over the last year plus is taking that technology out from Disruptor Beam, the game studio that I was running for mobile story games built around popular TV shows. We took that technology and relaunched as Beamable and we've been helping other game companies now. Cool. Well, thinking back, like what do you wish you had known back as a nine-year-old or or as a a 19-year-old maybe, right? Like, all right, I'm going to do this thing. Uh, I don't know, buy Bitcoin in 2011 and <laughs> get a lot of it. Uh, actually, I did, actually, funny thing, I actually mined Bitcoin on my blog with a JavaScript uh, miner back in 2011. So I did get a little bit, but uh, probably yeah. should have gotten more at the time. But right. um, no, if I guess in, you're asking a serious question, I gave you the joke answer. Um, geez, how do, you, how do you communicate back to a nine-year-old what you should know? I would just yeah. say you're on the right path, go for it. Because I've been super lucky in my life in that mm-hmm. um, I had a job as a as a paper boy, basically as like 11, 12 year old. This is not even a job they have 
right. anymore for, for people that are listening in. They don't know what the heck I'm talking no. about. Like it used to be 11 or 12 years old. You could go buy some newspapers from the newspaper company and deliver them. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe people won't even know what a newspaper is anymore, but this was a job that you could have as an 11 or 12 year old that yep. worked around the um, labor laws by making it not <laughs> a job. Basically they sell you the newspapers. So you're, you're running your own business essentially. Yeah. But ever since then, I, I have actually, I've had just had a weird life. I've never worked at uh, any other job than that. That's, that's the only one I had. So everything that I did was making games, creating them, selling them, starting software companies. Mm-hmm. I've been super lucky. So like, if I look back on my life and I'm asked the question, like, geez, what do you wish you would have known? I mean, I guess there's lots of things that if I was better at them or I made certain choices along the way, I could have multiplied my wealth by a hundred or a thousand. Mm-hmm. But look, I've had I've had such a fortunate and lucky life, and I'm really grateful for the opportunities that I've had. So yeah. the message I just share with anybody, not to my nine-year-old self, is if you love creativity, if you love the craft of making games, you know, and you have the opportunity to go for it, then go all in on it. There it is a real industry. Mm-hmm. With a couple hundred billion dollars plus of revenue coming through it, right? It's hard to get into, um, but you have to kind of go all in on it. And yeah. if you do, I think there's enormous rewards, and that's what happened for me. So I would hope that anybody is is willing to make the leap if that's what they really love. And and I guess that's the question: ask yourself is is being part of this industry something that you prefer over all the other options available to you? Because I think the mm-hmm. game industry is also one where it's hard to succeed at it unless it's really the favorite thing that you've got in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to be right, passionate about it and, um, and go for it, like you said. So what kind of advice would you give uh, for someone going the entrepreneurial route like yourself? You're going to get a lot of input, a lot of quote unquote advice, mm-hmm. a lot of people telling you that you've got a dumb idea. And a big part of entrepreneurship, I think, is not listening to all the opinions that exist because you will find it super disheartening. Mm -hmm. I think it's more important to figure out who's the customer you care about and what's the problem that they have and then what can you solve for them. So I've been able to do that in games and I've been able to do it in things that are technologies that help games. And I've been able to do it in things that are nothing to do with games. So I've mm-hmm. had the opportunity to do that through a few different ways. Everything I've ever tried, like most people thought it was a dumb idea, mm-hmm. including games back, you know, back, games back at Disruptor Beam that ended up reaching like 20 million players. We wow. in aggregate across the several games we did, we reached about 20 million players and you know, people thought the ideas we had for those games were dumb ideas. So hmm. you just got to remember that ultimately as an entrepreneur, you exist to delight customers and to solve new problems, figure out new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And when things are new and you're one of the first people who thought of it, yeah, if everybody else thought it was a good idea already, they would have done it. Right. So, of course, they're going to think it's a dumb idea. So, you can't be put off by that. You got to have pretty thick skin as an entrepreneur. You yeah. have to just believe in yourself and believe in the vision and kind of stick to it. Be kind of stubborn. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. Because if you listen to everybody, you're like, well, why am I doing this? And then you're getting, you know, neurotic, asking yourself, doubting yourself all the time. And yeah, it, it, I'm sure it probably wear on you and make you even drop out of it. So um, now I'll yeah. say if who you're listening to is customers and you're trying to solve a problem for customers with a specific problem mm-hmm. and all the customers out there are saying, no, that doesn't solve my problem. Yeah, you yeah, should listen right. to that totally and figure out what it is that you don't understand about the problem so that you can learn about it mm-hmm. and pivot yeah. towards the solution. Lots of businesses go that way, I, I think. So definitely listen to customers. That's right. what you care about. Right. The last people you should listen to is investors, right? Like investors, mm. you know, the vast majority of the time, the only way that they're only going to figure out that something's real actually is if customers are responding to it positively. But mm-hmm. investors often make terrible choices, don't really understand a lot of what's going on, mm-hmm. nor should, nor really should they, I guess, because you as the entrepreneur, you're the one who's close to the problem. You're the one who knows those customers and what their pain is or what the opportunities are for delighting them with the joy of, say, a gameplay experience. Yeah. But you know, investors don't know this stuff. You got to focus on customers and use the customer knowledge that you're gaining to convince the investors rather than ask them for input Mm -hmm. on what they think you should do. Yeah. No, those are great points. Cause yeah, they'll only accept it after it's been proven out in the marketplace. And they'll like, yeah, yeah. I always knew that was a good idea. It's like, well, two years ago you didn't, right? Like, so in terms of game developers, like what do you feel is the most important quality or skill for other game developers to have? Well, when we use the words game developer, I think that's an awfully broad category, right? So yeah. there's there's everything from Engineer game entrepreneurs who start studios. Yeah, there's programmers, artists, designers. Mm-hmm. So we could probably spend an hour just talking about the skills within them. I guess mm-hmm. looking back to the many years I spent making games, running a game studio a couple of times, mm-hmm. and I look back at that. The thing that always surprised me is the number of applicants that I would get who didn't really have a portfolio constructed in any way. Mm -hmm. So I really counsel anybody, whether you're an engineer, an artist, designer, assemble that portfolio that speaks to what your knowledge and skills are that that give you something demonstrable. If I'm I'm interviewing a first-time entry-level person, yeah. I don't expect you to have a triple A game to point to. It's not going to be about impressing me mm-hmm. with that kind of thing. It's about showing me that you have the ability, number one, to see some set of work from idea to some kind of outcome yeah. that you can actually see it through mm-hmm. and that you're able to talk articulately about what things you were doing with that. What problems were you solving? What mm-hmm. kind of artistic vision did you have for it? And if you're a student out there who's thinking about joining a game company or you really have hopes of being in the game industry, you have an incredible opportunity in that time during your training and your education to be assembling that portfolio now because right. it's harder to do when you're trying to straddle a whole bunch of other work obligations. Mm-hmm. But bring stuff with you to the job. And I think assembling that that set of work that illustrates your knowledge. And by the way, it, it doesn't, you know, if it's art, if you're an artist, then yeah. a, then it's art, right? If you're an engineer, we're not going to expect it has amazing art. If you're a designer, show us the game system that you've conceived of. Maybe it's a GDD, maybe it's concept. Go to a game jam. 
hang out with folks who do this kind of stuff for a few days and, mm-hmm. and fill in the gaps in your own skill set and make something. Yeah. That's uh, it always amazes me how um, people who want a job in games haven't made that investment. Right. Or, or, or they'll just on the resume say they're working on something, but there's nothing to show. And, and the fact that if you have something, even if it's rudimentary, but it's on a, a website and you actually saw it to completion, you know, that speaks a lot, right? Like it's not just, you know, everyone can say you're working on a game. Like I can download Unity tonight and say, yeah, I'm working on a game. Um, but the fact show that me whatever the heck yeah. it is. Yeah. And by the way, bring it to the interview and demo it and be ready to show it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. You'll be, I guarantee you'll be ahead of 90% of people seeking that position right away. You'll mm-hmm. stand out. Yeah. Definitely. And it'll be authentic too, because you actually will have developed those skills. It's not just about assembling the portfolio as a showpiece. That's the learning process you have. Game development is a craft. Mm-hmm. And the craft is one that is perfected and developed through making things. Totally. Um, what about advice uh, about developing interpersonal skills, EQ, the soft skills? What are your thoughts on that? If the game industry has taught me anything, I think it's taught me humility <laughs> because <laughs> the game industry will take your wonderful idea and your wonderful vision and show you that you are completely wrong about a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that to me is the basis of a lot of soft skills. It doesn't mean don't have conviction about things, right? Like you can be humble yet also have conviction about things that you think are important Mm -hmm. that you think would be great ideas, but willing to be willing to accept that you might not in fact know absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. Bring that beginner's mind to the things you're crafting and be open to new ways doing things, whether it's new business models, new ways of crafting the experiences, new ways of telling a story. Mm-hmm. I think that can become a very powerful skill because that humility then translates into curiosity, continuous right. improvement, learning. Yeah. And I've been lucky. Some of the games I've made have done really well. Not every one of them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the bad disruptor beam, we had, you know, at least one game that was a crash and burn basically. And we had a couple games that were in development that never even got announced or saw the light of day because we couldn't really get traction on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I look back to Star Trek timelines, which is the the game that financially speaking did most well at disruptor beam. And I also mm-hmm. feel I'm super proud of it as a game, not only for the commercial success, but it really delivered on what we were hoping for with the game, which is to capture the feel of Star Trek, the storytelling of Star Trek within right. it, which is yeah. very, very hard to do. Star Trek is a challenging IP because there's so many different aspects mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. And the thing with that game is we built about five games, right? We mm-hmm. we had to throw out four versions of that game. And it was only on the fifth try where along all the different games, we you know kept to a certain core set of convictions about the way the storytelling would have to work, but the way to express it through the gameplay changed very dramatically from system to system that we wrapped around it. I think if I didn't have the willing to do that experimentation, or if I was just so sort of you know believing in my own bullshit, I guess, on the first one, yeah. I would have said, hey, take this first thing. 
and we're just gonna go on a death march for the you know 18 months to build this game and and mm-hmm. then we'd end up with something that no one would want to play right so we we took the time to tell ourselves hey like Yes, we have our own feelings about if it's fun, we can kind of tell if things are working or not, but let's also show it to Star Trek fans and get their reaction mm. and see if it's the kind of experience which is resonating with them. So we made sure that we were gathering that information from outside as well. Mm-hmm. That's another skill, by the way. Like I kind of went from humility to curiosity to experimentation. Right. We were talking about you know, the building of a portfolio for someone maybe newer to the industry. But I think one of the most powerful things you can have as just about any kind of game developer is make something, make anything, get Mm -hmm. it to the point where you can put it in front of the people who you consider to be your audience for that game and start getting input back into you and start creating that feedback loop. The Mm -hmm. sooner you can create the feedback loop, the sooner I think you'll get to a game that you really like, and you'll know if you're on track. Yeah. And that's key. Um, Get the audience feedback and then rinse and repeat, you know, and yeah, it's about chasing the fun um, and figuring out ways to lay it out and make sure you get there. And it's not just always a straight path. Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back um, to find that, that fun. Um, I call it shots on goal. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I think a lot of people right. do, right? So that yeah. that I think is one of the things that you need to be able to do in the game industry, which mm-hmm. is it's shots on goal for any individual game. Maybe the first idea for the game isn't perfect, but try it and see if it works. Mm-hmm. Get enough input, but don't don't overinvest in it if it isn't working. You're, it's hard to pivot from something that doesn't work and then make it fun. Right. So be willing to move on. Same thing with features in a game. Any game is a constellation of a lot, a lot of features. Like mm-hmm you know, be willing to, to murder your babies sometimes and get something out of the game that isn't contributing. You take something out and then you get something else and then that doesn't quite work, but then maybe there's a mashup between two things that then makes something that is really excellent. Right. You know, so, um, it's about that the most successful game, yeah. The most successful game we made at Disruptor Beam was Star Trek Timelines. And it by far had the most things tried and thrown out along the way. Mm-hmm. whole game systems and then major features in the game user interfaces that we try all kinds of things just didn't make it in i remember one of the really senior game developers towards the end of the project he was actually so mad at me he's like i we worked on so many things in this game and we removed so much of it and you know i think mm-hmm. that carving it back sculpting it back to the game that we actually put forth is what worked. And then we had another game where like everything made it in. And that was the least successful game is because everybody got to have their, their feature present oh, within it. Right. And I wouldn't say that wasn't the only problem. There was other problems mm-hmm. as well, but um, yeah. yeah, you know, get stuff out if it's not working and, and don't worry about it. It does. That's not what makes a good game. It's the holistic experience of the game that you ship to your players that matters, not what did or didn't go into the pot. Yeah. And sometimes you try and put too much in, then it's just a mess, right? You know, it's the jack of all, master of none. It's like, what is this thing? It can't figure out what it wants to be, you know, so strip it away to get more to the, the essence of it. Um, yeah. Well, the learning experience. So here's the other learning experience that you can take back from that though, which is there is a little bit of deciding how big of a bet you're making in terms of, you know, how grand is the product vision and does it actually align to the capital you've got 
meaning mm-hmm. the money and resources to apply against it yeah. that will give you the shots on goal. Because with Star Trek, the reason that magic that I just described happening is we ha- we more or less had enough capital to try a bunch of things. We had the runway to do it mm-hmm. for the kind of game that we were trying to build. If we were trying to build a much more ambitious game than we were, it would have actually been less financially successful because we wouldn't have actually been able to iterate as much. We would have been very much stuck with some kind of the quote unquote vision out of the gate and we wouldn't have been able to optimize. We would have been really stuck with early decisions that would have harmed us. And I I think that's what went Hmm. wrong with the other game that I have in mind that we worked on where we had a very, very ambitious vision for it. And and I don't regret the ambition level. Mm -hmm. I regret that we didn't really have enough resources to pull off the kind of game that we wanted. So it meant that we had very little latitude to, to like retreat from certain areas of the design to press the reset button along the way, like we did with Star Trek timelines. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, we kind of dug ourselves into a spot, which, which was difficult. And we shipped a game that actually I liked playing and it was good, but it um, didn't Mm -hmm. capture enough of the market because we didn't, actually do enough that the customers of the particular kind of game really cared about where Star Trek timelines became this thing that we actually were able to put forth and it and it grew from there and still still does very well you know more than five years past shipping that game it continues to have a really great audience online and is actively maintained yeah I, I've seen some banner ads for it and stuff and I mentioned it um and in terms of, you know, one or two of your favorite projects, you've talked a lot about Star Trek Timelines. Would that be it? Or is there other projects or things you'd like to talk about as, as favorites? Oh, geez. I mean, now you're asking me to choose my favorite children, <laughs> basically. I mean, Star Trek Timelines right. stands out for its commercial se- success in uh-huh. addition to the satisfaction I had building it and the learning experience. Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones Ascent I mean, geez, going out and getting to know George R. R. Martin, sitting down with him a couple of days, working mm. through the game design, really getting to the essence of what makes Westeros and that world and George's vision for Game of Thrones and, yeah. and how to distill that down to a game. Like, that was amazing. Um, the gameplay itself was you know, nichier. So it appealed to a kind of a particular customer base that was really into the storytelling, really into the deep social mechanics, the Mm -hmm. guild mechanics and things like that. So we got to go really deep on things like story and social structures in a game and in a way that I don't see too many other games do. Um, So certainly that was awesome. And, And if I go all the way back, like, you know, the game that I started uh, with my future wife at the time, um, Angela, who you know started every game company, she started Disruptor Beam with me as well. Cool. Um, Legends of Future Past, where it's funny, like there's still people on Facebook who connect to me, and they were <laughs> Legends of Future Past players. And I mean, we're talking the '90s now. That, <laughs> that game was a long time ago, right? Yeah, you're saying BBSs, and I'm like, okay, right, yeah, you download games on BBSs and shareware and all that. That was that was the thing. You know, that's how you did stuff. So, what are you curious about right now in the industry? Hey, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please go to patreon.com backslash game dev advice. We'd love to see if you can support the show and help uh, new episodes keep coming out. That's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks.
If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Uh, so many things. Um, you know, number one, mm-hmm. I'm really trying to figure out, like, what makes shipping a game so hard? So we just talked about that, I think, for the last 20 minutes, right? Yeah. It's like the complexity of it, mm-hmm. what gets in the way. Because at Beamable, my a big part of our mission is just how can we help you build your game faster, get to market, get to revenue sooner, mm-hmm. focus your creativity on the stuff that actually matters. And I've had my own experiences from that, which I just described. I've gotten to know lots of other game developers because people are building on our platform. So they teach me all things all the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, number one, I'm just trying to figure out, like, how can we de-risk game development somewhat and help people ship their games and really focus their energy towards the stuff that matters. So I'm super curious about that. And, and I just spend a lot of time talking to game developers and understanding like what gets in the way, like, Mm. is this something that technology can solve in some way? Then, then we can probably help because we're a technology company. There's obviously a lot of things that are not technology. It's about communication and some of the soft skills we were talking about. Like that's a big part of it too. Mm -hmm. Um, Somewhat, those communication problems are exacerbated because teams end up being a lot bigger than maybe they need to be to pull off certain kinds of games. So, Mm -hmm. again, if we can help optimize and let smaller teams dream big, that's a big thing to me. Mm -hmm. I'm also really curious just about business models and how they're developing because over the last couple of years there's been a you know a couple new business models that have gotten more interesting there's the subscription model mm-hmm. with you know Xbox and whatnot has probably been the most successful with it at this point you can right. see that really growing you know Apple Arcade was another version of that but I think those kind of business models are super interesting as a new way to give a different kind of game experience life because mm-hmm. the thing with games is the business model determines a lot of the time what kind of game can actually be capitalized and right. made sustainable for the player. So arcade is one. Um, I'm really interested in this whole domain of open economy games. Sometimes people use that synonymously with with blockchain as an enabling technology. Mm-hmm. You know, open economy games are a little bit broader than that, but I think they're super interesting in terms of can there be these interoperable ecosystems of games that that work together in some way for the good of that whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You already see that in like a closed economy um, in things, or at least an internalized economy, like you have in stuff like Roblox. So again, right. that's, that's another business model in that it's through the simplicity of the tools and the access to audience and all of the server tech and the social environment, like all those things coming together in Roblox Mm -hmm. have made it so that you can have games in there that would have never gotten greenlit at a publisher. Like I don't think you wouldn't have had adopt me as a game at a publisher, but it Mm -hmm. works in Roblox. So I'm super curious about all these new business models and to what extent I might be able to 
either just learn from them and, and mm-hmm. synthesize that back into my knowledge about how to help people ship, how to help people be successful with their game. Or in some cases, maybe there's, again, technology that we can offer that would learn from some of these and bring it back to the broader game industry. Yeah. No, and you're right too. Like, yeah, there's game companies being built on, you know, the Roblox platform, right? That um, that's really, you know, interesting. It, it's it's not just individuals playing around with stuff and building it. Like there's there's all, you know, new types of business being developed using that as a as a platform. And hundred percent. Yeah. Where does it go from there? Yeah. yeah. So that's like, wow, it's it's not just for the the solo person messing around. There's like even uh, small teams are developing and using that as their platform. Yeah, I mean, we just have to always remind ourselves that when we talk about the game industry, it's a pretty big tent. There's a lot of things in it. It's everything from free-to-play games to, you know, big AAA games, Mm -hmm. indie games made by, in some cases, one person person, that do well. So, like, you've got a lot of different audiences, a lot Mm -hmm. of different business models that people will accept. You've Mm -hmm. got a lot of different production values, a lot of gameplay systems. So the main mistake I see people make, and again, and this is something I'm curious about as well, is they sort of see the world of gaming through the lens of either the games they make themselves or Mm -hmm. maybe the games that they like to play. And they have difficulty going from this world of what's right in front of them that they personally prefer and understanding that there's a broader industry that also contains Mm. a lot of content that they might not like, but is very popular and also popular for a kind of customer that may not be like themselves or like the customers they serve in the the games that they're building. So Mm -hmm. it's a very, very diverse industry. Yeah. And again, why I think curiosity and humility are such valuable assets for anybody mm-hmm. in this industry because there's always something new to learn, a new kind of customer that yep. you can figure out, a new type of business model or gameplay system that really like at first blush you might dismiss, but then you discover that there's really a lot there. Yeah. And it's about like not having blinders on, right? Like not, you know, just filtering it through your own tastes. Um and then I used to have a, a boss, Ken Terrell, that would always say, you know, every game can teach you something, right? Like, and mm. there's always something, and maybe it's just how not to do things, but, you know, there's always something teachable in, in other games. So don't, you know, dismiss things, um, see what you can learn from everything, because there is teachable moments in every type of game. 100%. And and with respect to business models, I mean, the interesting position I'm in today is like, in a sense, I don't really care if someone uses a free-to-play business model, if they're mm-hmm. a AAA game, if they want to do something with blockchain, if they want to build an open economy, if they want to be a subscription game. Like We exist to Beamable to help them deliver their game, whatever business model they choose to use. Yeah. So we just want them to choose the business model that's right for their game. And we're certainly rooting for everybody that's experimenting with new things that has a potential to scale way out. And and we Mm -hmm. want to celebrate that and support it. So, you know, we're, we're learning all the time. And then sometimes, you know, we find something in one kind of game that's like, Hey, I bet you could import some of this knowledge into another genre or another Mm -hmm. gameplay system and other people would, would benefit from that. So I'm, I'm just looking out for those kind of things all the time. Yeah. Yeah, again, kind of like the mashup thing, like we'll take this and put it in that and see what happens, you know. What about potential threats? Like what concerns do you have right now? 
Well, you know, the biggest threat right now is that there's just not enough skilled people to go around. This is a huge, huge yeah. booming industry. And if you look at, you know, what Activision said when they merged with Microsoft, they talked about how live services and AI and cloud infrastructure, like game mm -hmm. companies are now competing with the same talent pool that companies like Google and Amazon and yep. everybody is going after. So that's mm -hmm. a big part of game companies today. And that seems like a problem to me. Like yeah. I think game companies should be creative enterprises way ahead of anything else. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the distribution of capital from a game company, it's creativity is a small piece. Mm -hmm. And then often an even bigger place for particular for live services games in particular is like competing that, with that talent pool that I just described. Yeah, right. And then an even bigger piece is like putting lots and lots of money into performance marketing programs to acquire the next user mm -hmm. so that you can keep on the treadmill. So yeah. I think that that sounds, you know, like it's a little upside down, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, right. Yeah. so what I'm hopeful, I mean, we're going back to like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why is Beamable my passion? It's mm -hmm. because I see an industry of millions of people wanting to make games that are not getting to do the valuable creative work most of the time. And mm -hmm. I see opportunities to continue to bring lots and lots of creative people into this industry, but we got to optimize around the real value add and eliminate mm -hmm. some of these bottlenecks, just make things easier, make it a creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. And the threat I see is more dollars keep going to stuff that isn't creativity. Mm -hmm. That sounds wrong to me. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Giving people those tools and then they can express their ideas and it, it's an easier lift than trying to wire a bunch of systems together and fighting with things and, all the, you know, reduce the technical challenges. Um, the best um, force against that that we've come up with in the last 10 years really is the is the 3D engines. Like, mm -hmm. used to be that if you wanted to do a 3D graphics game, yeah. there was so much more tooling, so much more oh, matrix yeah, yeah. math. You'd have to know quaternions. You'd be doing GPU sh shader graph programming. Mm -hmm. Now, AAA games still do some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, shader graphs in particular. Right. But, but they're now but, writing their own engines from scratch for each game and writing drivers and all the stuff you did pre-DirectX and stuff. I mean, it was crazy back then. It was Wild West. Yeah. So we've done a really good job of automating the technology constraints that got in the way of creativity for a large, large number of games in the front end of mm -hmm. the experience. So to me, the threat in the industry is that we're such a complex industry, like every game is such a complicated beast. People, mm -hmm. un people underestimate just the complexity of just about any game. Like yeah. game makers, to their credit, are amazing tinkers, right? So yeah. they're really great at going in and working with all that complexity and shaping it and sculpting it and, you know, hammering away at the pieces that, you know, need to be hammered on. Right. That's, that's great, but um, we got to reduce the complexity of the stuff that isn't creatively centered. So the mm -hmm. 3D engine did it and they figured out a way to package it. I think there's probably other ways to package up a lot of other pieces and we're doing our part to try to move that forward. Mm -hmm. What about thoughts on AR, VR, metaverse, all those things? I, I know you've uh, written some things about that and have a lot of ideas. Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, yes, I write a blog called Building the Metaverse and um, I think VR and AR are really interesting. When I talk about the metaverse, I don't actually think of it as like 
needing AR or VR, I think of it really as the next generation of the internet really focused on this idea of projecting our identities into shared space. So that can be in pure audio, like a social audio platform like Twitter Spaces or Clubhouse, for example, or it could be fully embodied and immersive like like VR is. But I think... You know, VR has kind of had its year over the last year, I think partly because of the pandemic and Oculus Quest 2 really had some ergonomic improvements that made it more accessible to people. So for the first time, you really see a VR device. Yeah, it's more like a console, right? Yeah, so exactly. the v, the price point, but also the ergonomics, the accessibility of it has improved. Mm-hmm. I think of AR as what happens with VR when you get the form factor down to something like sunglasses, where mm-hmm. you can actually use it in your daily life and you don't walk around with the you know, with the headset equivalent of the mm-hmm. old Gordon Gecko phone from Wall Street, <laughs> if any of your listeners remember that, like the brick yeah. phone, right. <laughs> he's saying greed is good and he's got a brick phone against his head. That's yeah. kind of like where we are with, with the current state of VR. I think when that becomes like something you can seriously incorporate in your daily life, mm-hmm. then there's a lot of really interesting AR applications where we start projecting digital holograms into the space around us, where we start curating information from our environment, processing it with AI, mm-hmm. detecting things going around us. So lots and lots of interesting applications that don't really happen until either the ergonomics improve and then following the ergonomic improvement, there's mass adoption by many, many people so that you've got a network of AR equipped people out there. But right. I think that's a whole really super interesting field that's going to reshape the world over the next decade. Yeah, that was my next question is like timing wise. So yeah, over the next decade. To make AR in reach of the mass market, you've got to do a few things. You've got to make it, first of all, it's got to be cool looking. Let's face mm-hmm. it. Like yeah. it's, you know, I yeah. want it needs to look like Ray-Ban sunglasses. That's why I think Facebook did their deal with Ray-Ban with the Wayfarers. And that's not exactly an AR device. It's just audio and some picture taking and stuff. But mm-hmm. it kind of shows you what the form factor would need to be to provide a compelling experience for people. And right. it looks cool. So number one, it needs to look cool. Number two, battery life, you know, needs to be similar to a uh, phone. It needs to be right. like eight hours plus. Mm-hmm. Um, that requires massive improvements in semiconductors, batteries, material science, all kinds of things need to happen for that to come together. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it happens right away at the consumer level. It'll probably happen first amongst more industrial and business applications. It's where it's already happening. But mm-hmm. the cool stuff is not the business applications. The cool stuff is when we as consumers bring it into our lives. And that means you know, low price point and accessibility, ergonomics, and fashionable. Mm-hmm. The, the battery life is a big one, right? Like you can't have something that you have to charge every 75 minutes. Um, right. Something that looks cool and, and reasonable, right? Like the Google glasses were around and you'd always hear stories about someone getting punched in the face wearing the glasses, you know, you're like, get those things off, right? Whatever. Um well, that's another threat to it, right? Like, so that's kind of an unknown. And I I hear from people that you know, they're going to start punching people in the face again who are wearing <laughs> AR glasses. I'll tell you, I actually do own a pair of the Facebook stories, Wayfarers. I've worn them around. No one's tried to punch me out yet, so right. I'm not too worried about it. Right. Um, I, but that said, I don't walk around taking videos of people. <laughs> so, yeah, right, right. you know, 
maybe if they saw the little light going off on me, then someone yeah. would uh, give me a talking to. Right. That said, I also haven't been out in society all that much in the mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. So right, pandemic <laughs> yeah, changed all that. Back. Yeah, and who knows how true that was? But there's always the stories like, what's a funny or odd story from working in the industry? Like anything you want to share? The first thing that leapt to mind when you said that is I was thinking back to the days of advertising mm-hmm. um, games. So when I did Legends of Future Past, we advertised in a magazine called Omni Magazine, which was a... Oh, like a sci-fi. Magazine. Yeah, future. Yeah, yeah, I used to love the magazine. Yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally appealed to sci-fi enthusiasts and yeah, stuff like that. Future stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But so in the course of advertising with Omni... I came come, came to learn that the owner of that was the guy who um, who owned the whole penthouse. I, exactly, the, I was going to say that. Yeah, it's uh, what's his name, Guccione or whatever. Yeah, Guccione. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, who ended up being bankrupt and it was a complete disaster and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. um, I remember once he, I was invited to a party. It, it sounds like this is going to go cra- off the rails. It doesn't. <laughs> it was very it was a very tame, totally normal like uh-huh. cocktail party kind of experience. But it was at his house, which mm-hmm. was this incredible like nine story. Um, apartment overlooking Central Park, and I wow. guess at the time it was the it was like maybe the largest residential apartment in um, <laughs> in, 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 in Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, but, Manhattan, right? Yeah. But you know, like that was the weird world of like, hey, we used to have to advertise in magazines to get people to play <laughs> a computer game, and the people that owned some of these magazines were uh, interesting characters. And, uh, that, so that was the world of user acquisition back in my first game. (laughs) It's changed a lot now. And what was this like? Probably mid to late eighties or early nineties, something like that. Oh no, It was in the nineties. Nineties. Okay. Mid nineties. Yeah. Um, and and that was the way you had to get information out about games, right? Like, you know, EGM, which is outside of Chicago here had a big kind of stranglehold in the market and you'd hear some stories about stuff that would go on there. And yeah, it was all about, that's how people learned about stuff. Uh, was through magazines so that there was no it was magazines and store shelves yeah right what else was there there were yeah. bulletin board systems but not that many people use them yeah you gotta pay the money for the end cap and and all that in the stores to get people to, to buy your stuff so what about games you're playing right now that you're excited about anything jump to mind you know i always keep coming back to stellaris i, I really mm-hmm. love the game i actually caught up on a whole bunch of dlc the other day that okay. i had skipped out on and, and bought a bunch more but i i mean i love i love several categories of games but i always love strategy games and kind of 4x kind of games so uh-huh. i played that uh a lot recently i've played humanity which is kind mm-hmm. of the want to be unkind to it kind of similar to civilization really good game okay um so i love strategy games mm-hmm. you know the my favorite triple a game of the last couple of years is still the last of us plus last of us two kind of i played them back to back i started playing last of us at the beginning of the pandemic and then Hmm. played straight through last of us two that's cool and super enjoyed that kind of game with rich storytelling and a a really immersive Mm -hmm. world but haven't haven't surpassed last of us in the last couple of years quite yet in terms of the triple a experience you know and then i guess my my dirty pleasure is i i uh for some reason i'm i'm hooked on idle games 
here and there. So, ah, okay. and I play cookie <laughs> clicker and I'm playing shrimps and I'm playing, of course, our customer just uh, launched the office, which is a very okay. um, yeah, successful yeah. game charted to top 10 in iOS in the last couple of weeks. So that's, cool. a, that's an idle game as well. So idle games are really cool. I think it's, it's interesting. I have to admit originally a few years ago, I wrote them off as a category because I just thought, you know, it's just literally about clicking, but right. the ones that are interesting make you actually think about how to allocate your resources and then bring clever storytelling into it, mm-hmm. actually. So, you know, again, it's it's like that curiosity. Like once I got curious about it, I saw, right. hey, this is actually a pretty interesting dynamic area of gameplay that, that people are working on and it, it can keep yeah. people engaged and it can tell interesting stories and you can even add social elements around it. Right. And, and it's, you know, it's almost like strategy light, right? You know, it's casual, but it's it's not just click, 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 right? There is some strategy to it. So you have to think a little bit about it, but it's not that investment of time, right? We, we sit down on like a Civ type game for three hours in front of a computer. A little, well, I love, you know. I love sitting down in front of a Civ type game for three hours. And in my case, I probably wouldn't be able to get up after just three hours. It'd be more like <laughs> 15 hours or something like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Is he live down there? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm good. Exactly. Um, is there anything I should ask you about, but didn't? Oh, geez. So we've covered so much. Um, it's been a really fun conversation. Cool. You know, my, my only comment is if you're a game developer who's struggling with shipping your game and it seems like there's a lot to do, um, I, I want to learn, learn about what your challenges are. Come, you know, connect with me on Twitter or mm-hmm. YouTube or something like that. I've, on Twitter, I'm Jay Radoff. You know, okay. Jump on there and tell me what kind of challenges you face. If I can help, I can. Uh, it's uh, R-A-D-O-F-F. I'll put it in the show notes also. And um, yep, J-R-A-D-O-F-F. Thanks. Yeah. Last question. Like, What's one piece of advice you'd give others working in the industry right now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like a broken record, but I, you know, no, I think that right. Well, I'll be a little more specific, though. I think there's a lot of emotion around newer business models that are coming to the industry. And listen, for yeah. all we know, they won't, they won't work. Maybe they won't. We don't mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. because it hasn't really played through the whole cycle yet. Right. But it feels to me a little bit about a little similar to the emergence of free to play as a business model, which is, mm-hmm. I think most people now realize is, is the major business model yeah. of the industry. And I'm not going to forecast whether something is or isn't going to be the dominant business model. But I do think there's a lot of things that are in play, a lot of things that are changing. I would say, don't be threatened by these things. Just try to learn about them because Mm -hmm. it might be really important to learn about these things and and see why they work and why people care about them. Mm -hmm. You're right. There is a very, uh, how should I say this? People just being very visceral and just like going crazy about stuff, whether it's, um, you know, NFTs or metaverse or stuff like that. And, you know, you see people's handles like NFT with swearing in it and stuff like that. So it's like, yeah, just kind of be curious and don't go crazy about some of these new things and just kind of let us see where they go. You know, at least learn about it on your own, right? Like approach it with some curiosity, do the learning here, Mm -hmm. hear what people have to say on, the right. skeptic side, as well as the enthusiast side, try to find, I mean, I've tried to write because like, I, I don't have like a dog in the fight per se. Like I'm not trying to sell my NFT or my NFT based game or my mm-hmm. subscription based game. Like it, like I don't benefit in any way from any of these business models than the hope that overall the industry as a whole 
expands mm-hmm. because the, the bigger the industry gets, the bigger I think the opportunity is for all of us, but of course for Beamable because we support anybody in the industry who wants to build a game. Yeah. You know, just you know, try to get a 360 degree view of these things. If you if you learn about it and you've reached your own conclusion that it's either not for you or you don't think it's successful, that's that's totally fine. I would just say don't just recirculate the same Right. because it's fun to do and without really understanding anything mm-hmm. about it that you're not really helping yourself yeah no you're right because right. you're you're just passing stuff along without really trying to gain an understanding and, and i think if you're working in the game industry mm-hmm. business models have had pretty substantial changes just about every 10 years really if you look if you look at the industry like there have been smaller changes right every year all along the way mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, although free-to-play wasn't like brand new 10 years ago, I'd say about 10 years ago is about when free-to-play really took off at the scale that you could see that it was going to pass other business models at a certain point. If you go 10 years before that, it was actually like subscriptions and the rise of MMOs. And Mm -hmm. it started to look like, hey, MMOs were going to be the new business model. And actually for a little while they were, Mm -hmm. and for at least a couple of games, they certainly are, and they've endured. It never ended up taking over pervasively. Mm -hmm. Right now, we don't know whether these newer business models are going to be like subscription MMOs, where it's going to be winner take all for, I don't know, two or three really major players. Mm-hmm. Or whether it's going to be like free to play, where it becomes transformative for thousands of studios. No, you're right about that. Timing. Or it might be nothing. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I yeah. think that's possible too. No, I, I think back like ten years ago, we were working on a Marvel Avengers game, and that was back when it was about 2011, 2012. We shipped it, and free to play was just kind of emerging. So the model was just like, well, you just put it in the app store, and it's six ninety nine, right? That's just what you do, and. And it wasn't really like, well, let's think about how we can make this free to play and kind of build the business around that. And then a lot of games came out with that price or, you know, you buy it um, and then go back and they were trying to kind of retrofit it to be free to play. But then it always felt kind of bluegy and bolted on. Um, Sometimes they pulled it off, but most of the time it just felt weird. So, yeah, models do change and every 10 years seems to be pretty reasonable. And you think back to 20 years ago, everyone making MMOs, right? Like there's just stories of these companies that poured tons of money and crashed and burned because they're like, well, we'll just do the next, you know, Warcraft and we'll, we'll just do the next uh, League of Legends. And it's not that easy, right? So, well, I would say the real change that occurred out of the MMO phase, what you could say is actually digital distribution of games in general, because MMOs was essentially a way to digitally distribute games. And they were way at the forefront of that today. I think the statistic I read is that it's something like 97% of games are distributed digitally, like 3% or whatever are actually bought in a box at a store. So, you know, so that business model state, the the broader scope of that business model changed towards digital Mm -hmm. distribution was the enduring element, whereas MMO ended up being kind of the smaller piece of that. Mm-hmm. I suspect that open economy games are a big thing, and blockchain is certainly a technology to support that. And maybe there's some other ways to support open economy games that haven't really been proven out yet. But you know, open economies are as old as every game really in magic the gathering you could say is an open economy game so Mm -hmm. i don't see any reason that that wouldn't happen or that consumers don't want it actually i think consumers 
might think that's pretty cool, but mm-hmm. time will tell. You gotta you right. gotta let the experiments run though. Like I think it's a really super interesting space of experimentation. And I guess I'd ask people to not begrudge anyone who's throwing themselves in and mm-hmm. experimenting with this new stuff. Yeah, because people like to just get in their clicks and kind of trash on others without maybe thinking you know (laughs) know that yeah uh, you know what it's it that is that is totally true and something i've observed about us in the game industry is sometimes we can be a little bit cynical like the new thing is the new thing we hate on it a lot Um, right right and I wish we loved innovation a little bit more. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but I, that said, I shouldn't generalize because it's a huge industry with many, many people. And you'll find every aspect of that continuum mm-hmm. present in the industry. Cool. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Yeah. Thanks for having me here, John. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this stuff. If mm-hmm. you know, I can help anybody out, feel free to connect with me over on Twitter or LinkedIn and happy to exchange ideas with people and, and hear about the game that you're working on. And if yep. I can help, whether it's beamable or just a, a piece of advice, I'm always happy to connect with people. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Go to the website at gamedevadvice.com and you can find the show notes along with show notes for all the other episodes. Please also check out the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Have a lot of options up there for how you can support the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Thanks again for listening and being part of the show. Take care. Bye-bye. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.